normal morning dawns in Milan like any other. It's May 17, 1972, and Commissioner Luigi Calabresi is having breakfast with his family, his pregnant wife Gemma, and young sons Mario and Paolo. He finishes up, gets dressed, and goes down from his modest third-floor apartment onto Via Cherubini at about 9 a.m. According to eyewitness testimony, a blue Fiat 125 starts creeping slowly along, shadowing the police inspector. He starts to cross the street to his own car when a tall, blonde man, dressed in a knit sweater and a blue coat, gets out of the Fiat and shoots Calabresi, once in the shoulder and again in the neck. After the second shot, the blue Fiat 125 stops. The assassin jumps back in the car, and the driver, apparently a woman with shoulder-length hair, possibly a wig, hits the gas and speeds off. The case of the assassination of Luigi Calabresi comes just two weeks before the Peteano massacre. Shock and outrage spread through the country. Who is tearing the country apart? Police immediately begin to investigate the extra-parliamentary left group Lota Continua in both acts. But, as the trail goes cold, only tension, grief, and pressing anxiety remain. Some 16 years later, a man comes forward to confess his involvement in the killing, but the holes in his story only add to the confusion, reigniting the turmoil that many thought had been buried in the past. This is the story of Luigi Calabresi, his assassination, and the strange trial that led to the convictions of three members of the extra-parliamentary Italian left. Hi there, and welcome to the Years of Lead pod, where we talk about the explosive political turmoil that broke open everyday life in Italy, culminating in years of targeted assassinations, kidnappings, and bombings, known as the Years of Lead. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and today we're going to talk about Milan Police Commissioner Luigi Calabresi and his untimely death at the end of an assassin's bullet in 1972, along with the complicated investigations and court proceedings that preceded. So, I'm going to stop doing that voice now. Born in Rome in 1937, Calabresi had the benefits of a middle-class life, ultimately studying law at the University of Rome Sapienza and gaining his doctorate through a dissertation on the Sicilian mob around 1964. But rather than go into law, he decided to join the police, going into the academy in 1965 and securing his role as a deputy commissioner of the Milan police after that. This was a pretty high position, lots of prestige, particularly in the late 1960s, on the eve of the great student revolts and workers' agitation known as the Long 68, as it cascaded into the hot autumn of labor strikes and factory occupations. So Calabresi's role as deputy commissioner of the Milan police involved not only crime solving, but bigger picture matters, especially pursuing and investigating militant political groups, monitoring them, uh, which ultimately obviously meant infiltration and the use of police spies. This is a notorious ethical problem. 
as police spies are often unethical people who do things that violate the law. Police agencies are then put in the position of having to either defend or disassociate from their own spies, thus engaging in cover-ups to ensure that the investigations won't be discovered. This isn't really a contested fact, nor is it a questioned reality. It's just the way that things work, and it's very controversial. And I should also add here that the Milanese police were among the most, if not the most, hated police in Italy. Widespread workers' agitation led to prolonged clashes in the streets, and the huge gap between rich and poor in the city was represented geographically by the distribution of slums extending out into the city's periphery, which became dominated by the street life of criminal gangs and impoverished youths. It was a time of rock and roll, as well as political fracturing and dance hall crashing. The police in Milan despised this kind of lawlessness and were known to crack down on the poor especially hard. But Calabresi also sympathized to a degree with the radical groups of Milan, particularly insofar as he fashioned himself a modern man with a flair for the classics and radical philosophy. He also studied karate, and on joining the police force, he molded an image among his compatriots as a hard man, without frills or trifles. But his public image was compassionate, a man of letters, a doctor of law, a person from privilege who sought to grapple not just with extra-parliamentary groups, but with their ideas, in a sort of Dostoevskian battle with the dark side of the human soul, the unconscious, and the crisis of justice in a world forsaken by God. Luigi Calabresi met Gemma, the woman who would later become his wife, in January 1968, and they were engaged just 10 months later. Soon after, Gemma's sister got the option on two floors from a nice new apartment complex on Via Cherubino. She later wrote, we got married on May 31st, 1969, a date that has no particular meaning for me or him, was just simply the first Saturday available in San Pietro in Sala, our parish, where we attended the groups held by Don Sandro, a friendly priest. Going to church that day, I calculated smiling that since Gigi and I had seen each other for the first time, not even a year and a half had passed. I think about it now, it seems to me that all that kind of haste with which we did things, marriage, children, made sense, even if then we could not know it. Supposedly, Calabresi attempted to establish an understanding and rapport with members of the extra-parliamentary left in Milan in the late 60s, including a rail worker named Giuseppe Pinelli, with whom he had even exchanged radical literature on Christmas. If this is true, it was likely in no small part an early iteration of more kind of postmodern styles of policing in a sense, to gain influence and friendly relations with an opposing group in order to tamp down the potential for more adversarial activities. Calabresi was also a social democrat, but at the same time, his carefully cultivated public appearance indicates that while this may have been conscientious to a degree, it was also a performance. But Gemma argues that Luigi had a kind of existentialist understanding of people and ideology. Quote, 
The newspapers will then write with amazement the books that he and Pinelli had given each other on the previous Christmas, testifying to their bond. I see in that mutual gift a sign and a seed of something that has sprouted in me too. The certainty that when you peel off the layers and look at one another as human beings, the distance becomes small, so small that it is possible to build bridges over them. I believe it now. Gigi believed it then. In December 1969, with the bombing of the agricultural bank in Piazza Fontana that killed 17 and injured more than 80, Calabresi was immediately thrust into the spotlight. Bombing attacks had been building up throughout the year as a part of what we now understand to be the strategy of tension, coordinated by the fascist organization Ordine Nuovo with the support of right-wing networks within the Italian state. With these attacks, those networks made efforts to blame the left through infiltration and by planting false leads. You can go back to the Piazza Fontana episodes and find more about this, but members of the Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale had fostered splits within the anarchist movement in Milan involving an activist named Pietro Valpreda, who became a suspect in the Piazza Fontana massacre. In the days following the massacre, Calabresi immediately had rounded up dozens of anarchists. Pinelli, who he trusted enough to come to the police station under his own free will, was one of them. During the interrogation, Pinelli either fell or was pushed from the fourth floor window of the police station. The death of Pinelli in police custody immediately aroused an international outcry with protests around the world, and a few weeks later, investigating magistrates would recognize that the anarchists had not been behind the bank bombing, instead following the so-called Black Trail, leading to a fascist group operating out of Padua. The death of Pinelli and the ultimate realization of far-right responsibility for the bombing led the left-wing group Lota Continua to take the warpath against Calabresi. For Lota Continua, the Piazza Fontana massacre had been nothing less than a massacre by the state itself. Calabresi was not some conciliatory intellectual, but a hardened, CIA-trained murderer whose role it was to derail the investigation into the real culprits. The group's campaign against Calabresi, brought through their newspaper, was extremely clear. Calabresi was responsible for murdering Pinelli as part of the state's plot to frame the left for the Piazza Fontana massacre. Luigi and Gemma's firstborn son, Mario, was born on February 11th, 1970, two months after the bombing, but increasingly Gemma notices a change in Luigi's demeanor. He smiles less, works more, and he becomes more distant. Meanwhile, Lota Continua tore him apart in print, using the biting sarcasm and acerbic humor typical of the publication. In one cartoon, for example, they portrayed Luigi Calabresi teaching his one-year-old son how to guillotine a doll that represented anarchists. In one article from October 1970, they declared, quote, We were too tender with Commissioner Luigi Calabresi. He's permitted to continue to live quietly, to continue to do his profession as a policeman, to continue to persecute his companions. It was necessary to do this in order to figure it out, 
However, his face has become habitual, known for the militants who learned to hate him, and the proletariat has already issued its sentence. Calabresi? He's responsible for the assassination of Pinelli, and Calabresi will have to pay dearly. Always a man who sought a cultivated public image, Calabresi was roiled by Lotta Continua's campaign. He also liked to keep his family apart from his work. After he's promoted to full commissioner, he sues Lotta Continua's editor for defamation in the spring of 1971, but the trial didn't really go his way at all. Journalists are often skeptical of defamation trials against news sources, even if they hate those sources, because there's a natural instinct to journalistic self-preservation. And as the defamation case proceeded, Calabresi felt like the tables had turned and he himself was now on trial, both in the court and in the media. In June 1971, the magazine L'Espresso published an open letter signed by a number of luminaries condemning Calabresi in print. I should note that it did come out, however, during this trial that, according to witnesses, there were five men in the room with Pinelli when he died, but Calabresi was not one of them. Lotta Continua had also accused Calabresi of going to the U.S. and cavorting with the CIA and a man they called, quote, General Edwin Walker, Barry Goldwater's military mind, leader of the American pro-fascist right. Indeed, Lotta Continua alleged that it was Walker who introduced Calabresi to General Giovanni de Lorenzo around 1965, thus instigating all the intrigues culminating in Piazza Fontana. This was a complete fabrication, though, and Calabresi, whose name Lotto Continua had misspelled repeatedly for weeks on end, had never even been to the United States. He didn't speak a word of English, and his passport had only one stamp, from Barcelona, Spain, where he and Gemma had gone on honeymoon. Mario, his son, would later write, quote, He graduated in 1965, had made the competition to become deputy commissioner, and in 1966 he participated in the training course of the police school. That the CIA relied on a recent graduate in Rome, then gave him the task of leading a general in Rome, and that a student of the police school was the intermediary between the Americans and an Italian coup artist is almost fun to imagine itself. So incredible. Today, with Google, everything's easier, and so I went to browse who this walker was. He was an American general who had fought in Italy in World War II and then in Korea. He had very right-wing ideas, so much so that Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, relieved him of office and he left the army in 1961. Regardless of the clear falsities, Gemma resisted Luigi's legal course of action against Lotto Continua, insisting that it was, quote, playing their game. And of course, it did become a media circus. During the trial on October 14th, a group of leftists shouted him down and heckled him in court, calling him an assassin, a buffoon, and yelling, thrown out the window. Calabresi had to be escorted to the hallway behind the courtroom by security for his own protection. The couple's second child, Paolo, was on the way when Luigi told Gemma, that when she went out, whether it was to the hairdresser or the doctor, she needed to avoid giving her last name away. After a few months, things just got worse. 
He told her that when she leaves the house to make sure nobody's around, always to make sure she's not being followed, to be on the alert for suspicious activity and so forth. Meanwhile, more articles in Lota Continua are coming out all the time, ranging from the funny, like cartoons portraying people lining up outside of Calabresi's office wearing parachutes, to the serious, like ending articles with statements like, quote, it doesn't end here, and quoting graffiti that had appeared in Milan simply stating, let's kill Calabresi. Paolo was born in early June that year, which gave the Calabresis an excuse for their lack of a social life. But in reality, Gemma says, it was all based on safety concerns. When they went to a restaurant, it was only the one they knew well and in a high state of alert. When they went to a movie, they'd get there late and leave early to make sure nobody recognized them. He was so notorious that when he and Linda met some friends of friends, the man remarked, I'd change that name if I was you, like giving a little laugh. The guy didn't actually realize that he was talking to the actual commissioner, Luigi Calabresi, and Luigi had to show the man his ID card to prove that he was the same Calabresi. The police encouraged Luigi to carry a gun at all times, and so did his wife, but Luigi kept it dismantled in the sweater drawer. Eventually, he just left it in the station, telling people that if they hit me, it will be from behind anyway. When the couple found out about their next baby, they were delighted, but others were more concerned. Linda's parents asked Luigi to leave his job with the police, but he insisted that it would be like running away, and he had to prove his innocence. Meanwhile, the streets are heating up. Lotto Continua's language has always favored proletarian violence in the face of state violence, but Piazza Fontana had changed the game, and spontaneous violence was increasingly being interpreted not only as violence of the workers, but also violence of the avant-garde. Since Lotto Continua viewed themselves as the avant-garde within the movement, this meant perhaps creating a secret structure to organize and carry out targeted attacks. Now, this is something that their former leader, Adriano Sofri, absolutely denies. But the leader of their Turin office, Giorgio Merlo, explained, quote, A semi-clandestine structure was born. The logic was to use the most trusted militants, in the sense of being politically responsible, who did not go underground, continued their work, but carried out unsigned clandestine actions. Within the security forces... Groups began to form for this type of vanguard operations related to the struggles, hitting the foreman, the fascist, or burning his car. But we talked about beatings and physical intimidation, certainly not wounding or murder. The Trento branch leader, Paolo Sorbi, explained, quote, The organizing group of Lotto Continua realized that it was talking about violence, which meant organizing vanguard part partisan actions. These actions began soon after 1970. The foreman's cars are burned, guns are hidden, drug dealers and drug addicts are beaten up, the kids of the MSC youth group are hunted down. So things were getting really violent in Milan in particular, and allegedly Lotto Continua co-founder Giorgio Pietro Stefani asked the leaders of the Red Brigades if they wanted to join forces but the latter refused. On March 3rd, 1972, the Red Brigades kidnapped Hidalgo Macchiarini 
And Lotte Continua surprised everybody by publicly supporting the action. Just over a week later, on March 11th, left-wing groups bring together a rally on behalf of Pietro Valpreda, the anarchist accused of participating in the Piazza Fontana bombing. But the cops reject their permit. For the same day, the police approve a rally for the MSE. In response, 10,000 leftists march on the police lines that protect the fascists. For three hours, fighting between the cops, the leftists, and the fascists rages in the streets of Milan. A passing pensioner, Giuseppe Tavecchio, is hit with a tear gas canister in the head and dies. These are the days of the silent majority protest. And if you want to hear more about that, there's an episode that I did a month or two back about it. We also go over this a bit in the second Red Brigades episode with Shane Burley, but in April, Lotto Continua adopts the line of a, quote, total clash, which involves explicit violence. But this wasn't what most interested Calabresi at the time. Calabresi was investigating weapons trafficking across the Italian border, and in April he wrote up an extensive report on the subject, locating the center of the ring in the Veneto, where the fascist group Ordine Nuovo had its most active militant operations. On May 5th, Lotto Continua organizes another anti-fascist rally against another MSE march through Milan. During a police attack against the counter-protest, an anarchist named Franco Serentini was surrounded and beaten down. The police brought him to the police station and then to jail, where he stayed the night. The next day, Serentini is interrogated but seems unresponsive. He's brought back to the jail where he dies the next day. News of Serentini's death drew renewed rage against the police in this time of intensification in Milan, and Calabresi is the most identifiable with the Milanese police. On May 12, 1972, Luigi and Gemma are walking down Corso Vercelli with their two young children. Gemma looks at her image in the reflection on the windows of a pharmacy and the thought flashes before her mind, I'm a widow. She breaks down out of exhaustion and fear, publicly weeping convulsively, but she's able to collect herself. Known generally as reasonable and calm, she assures herself that this is not the case, and although things are spinning out of control, she goes forward. The next day, Lotto Continuo holds a rally for Serantini in Pisa. It's raining, and there are many cops. Photos of the rally reflect a subdued gathering of people, many holding umbrellas in the spring weather. Around this time, in Milan, Luigi takes Mario to see the grandparents, right? And Mario overhears him asking his mother-in-law, quote, If anything happens to me, promise you'll look after the kids. Decades later, when writing his own book, Mario Calabresi would ask his mom if his memory was correct or if it was some fantasy. He remembered the feeling of his dad's head and his hair brushing up against his face. Music, a lot of people. In Mario's words, he was on his dad's shoulders when he saw a shiny trombone, and his father, quote, asked me if I wanted to touch it. I was shy, 
and then no one was approaching. People were all along the side of the road, watching the parade. No one went beyond their imaginary line. Instead, he bypassed something, past barriers. I clung to his hair, he grasped my legs, I was afraid. I felt that we were doing something out of the rules, but I trusted him. We approached the band, he talked to someone, asked for something, bent over to the trombone, and let me touch it, just for a moment. Gemma went back into her diary to check, and found that Luigi had indeed taken Mario on May 14th to a parade, bringing back some pasta, ice cream, and a rose, which had been carefully preserved within the creases of the diary all those years later as a testament. The next day, the commissioner comes home early and was able to park in the garage, as Gemma's diary reflected, but it would be a later night the following evening, so he parked on the street. According to Gemma, the morning of the 17th was mundane. Luigi was late for work, wearing a pink tie and a black coat as he left, but something wasn't right. He came back in to change. The new maid was late, which he kind of jokes about. He puts on a white tie instead of the pink tie and asks her something like, how am I doing? She replies that he had looked fine before anyway. And then he leaves the house, commenting on the white tie with his last words, quote, This is a symbol of my purity. Outside, a blue fiat was lying in wait. According to two different witnesses, it was apparently being driven by a woman, slowing down considerably along the street so that two cars were backed up behind it. One witness named Papini recalled, quote, At this point, when Calabresi was preparing to cross the street, from the blue Fiat I saw a very tall man descend, dressing in a blue jacket and a busy black sweater, who, passing, that is, bypassing his car and passing in front of mine, came up behind Calabresi, the gentleman who had come down from the sidewalk, who, in the meantime, had arrived across the street and was between the two cars flanked there. The man shot Calabresi twice, once in the shoulder, once in the neck. The blue Fiat stops, the man gets back in, and then it takes off like a rocket. Quote, Many times I imagined... What it would be like if the day they killed Gigi, I had heard the shots and been able to look out and see his body on the ground, wrote Gemma. Instead, the silence of the courtyard gave me about 10 minutes more of my previous life, the one in which happiness was still a possible concept. And above all, it preserved the last image I have of Gigi, who, smiling, wishes me well from the door. So after about 10 minutes, the Calabresi's maid finally comes, telling Gemma that a commissioner has been shot. She says, but my husband is a commissioner, but the first thing that she thinks about is the fact that she's not supposed to admit their identity to anyone. She feels like she's betrayed him. So she calls the police station but can't get through. Then... Luigi's friend, Mr. Federico, from across the street, knocks on the door. Without entering, he tells her what's happened, and she screams. Mario Calabresi recalls the moment in his book, 
pushing past the night. Quote, My memory starts from there, from that no. Desperate. I'm clinging to her skirt. He tried to talk to her. She escaped, turning on herself. I was turning with her. In my memory, we continue to turn for a very long time, frozen in black and white. I thought he wanted to hurt her, and I didn't know how to defend her. Once she stopped, he spoke to her. She cried. I tightened my grip on her legs, and I felt lost. Mario would be afraid of Mr. Federico for a long time after that, because he thought the nice man had hurt his mom. Linda was taken in a car to drop the kids off at her parents' house, but they took her upstairs, and it was there that they told her the news. Her husband was dead. Lotta Continua responded really harshly to Luigi Calabresi's murder, insisting that the means of political murder were excessive, but that this remained the case of proletarian justice. In their words, the murder was, quote, an act in which the exploited recognized their will for justice. One of their readers dissented from the murder only because, quote, it will be only after we have taken power that we can say, this bourgeois must be rightly eliminated and this other must be re-educated. However, the Calabresi killing began a process through which most of the radical leaders of Lotta Continua would begin to leave the organization. An activist named Luciano Pero wrote an open letter and posted it on the bulletin board of Lotta Continua's Milan headquarters. Quote, It is not true that the killing of Calabresi does justice to the proletariat, he wrote. The feeling of private revenge is a bourgeois, not a proletarian feeling. In the rebuttal, published in Quaderni Piacentini, with an editorial note distancing the publication from the author, a comrade insisted that the proletariat, quote, cannot help but, in a clash that inevitably proceeds towards class warfare, have its own advanced departments that allow it to face the enemy on all terrain. It continued, quote, Each phase of the clash between classes corresponds to a specific degree of violence exercised by the masses, and this is what also requires the vanguard to exercise a certain share of organized and direct violence. Lotto Continua was actually starting to fall apart and change direction at the same time. The editor, Adele Cambria, resigned and the directorate shifted to Rome. In Cambria's resignation letter, she wrote, The killing of a man can never be a party for anyone, and I refuse to believe that it can be for the proletariat, especially when it happens through a political murder. Calabresi, in my opinion, he was killed by the same logic of power that had used him, and which he probably no longer needed today. What did the exploited have to do with these murders? If I had written the commentary on Calabresi's mur murder, the title would have been Let the Dead Bury Their Dead. In Rome, the group would transform into a revolutionary party rather than an extra-parliamentary vanguard. The defamation court case against Lotta Continua continued after Calabresi's death, leading to a conviction. So they had lied about him in print, according to the court. Meanwhile, 
Investigators immediately suspected that Lota Continua members had carried out the assassination. They were confirmed in their suspicions by an informant from the Red Brigades and Gap, who connected the Peteano massacre later that May to the Calabresi killing, insisting that both had been the result of Lota Continua. But this also turned into a dead end really quickly. Soon after, police turned to suspecting the far right. As mentioned, Calabresi had been investigating arms trafficking. And in September, the financial police had pulled over three fascists, two Italian men named Gianni Nardi and Bruno Stefano, and a German woman named Gudrun Kies. The three had been stopped near Como, driving a black Mercedes. Immediately, they offered to pay for a six-pack of cigarettes that they'd brought in from Switzerland in hopes to quickly pay for the merchandise. But then the police get curious about this weird readiness to pay for a crime. The financial cops search their car and find several tubes of gelignite explosives, some slow-burning fuse, a 9mm Browning, a P-38, and lots of assorted ammo, along with a map of Italy's northeast Friuli region. Following a search of Nardi's apartment, police uncover a map of the Via Cherubini area, along with encrypted plans for a coup and shell casings that don't actually match the bullets used in the Calabresi murder. These suspects match the description given by the two witnesses, and once behind bars, Kisa's cellmate told authorities that she had admitted that the assassination of Calabresi was due to his carrying out an investigation of the murder of a wealthy man named Pietro Guarnieri. Of course, Kis denied this emphatically, and she, along with Nardi and Stefano, were exonerated. Not long after their release, however, more evidence trickled in. Ordine Nuovo member Paolo Signorelli boasted to his friend Ordo Tisse that he had met with Nardi in 1976 in Spain. The two got to talking about the Calabresi assassination and Nardi confessed to Signorelli that he, Kis, and Stefano had killed Calabresi to end the police investigation into their weapons trafficking ring. Nardi died mysteriously a short time later, however, and by the time Tisse came forward with Signorelli's story, it was 1982, and this was a kind of double hearsay. A fascist pentito who heard from another fascist who heard Nardi's confession. Completely inadmissible. The thesis that Nardi, Kies, and Stefano killed Calabresi due to his investigation into their gun-running ring would be substantiated by a claim that, on Sunday, May 14th, just three days before his murder, Calabresi was in Trieste, all the way across Italy, pursuing leads about the publisher Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli, who had died while trying to plant a bomb in an electrical pylon near Milan on March 14th. Calabresi was supposedly looking into the possibility that Feltrinelli was involved in running guns from Yugoslavia through a ring that involved a wealthy left-wing financier named Count Giorgio Guarnieri, who had links to the fascist Ordinovisti based in Padua along with the radical left. Calabresi's son, Mario, is quoted as saying, quote, 
I learned from my mother that my father returned troubled from that trip to Trieste and told her he had seen weapons deposits set aside in caves and quarries. Inconveniently, however, we already have May 14th down in Gemma's diary as the day that Luigi took Mario to the parade. Remember, Mario touched the trumpet and Luigi brought back the rose that Gemma found in her diary decades later. So even if the gun-running thesis can't be totally excluded based on the fumble of dates there, its only substantiations appear to be hearsay from Pentiti. At the same time, there were also members of the extra-parliamentary left who, in the late 1970s, claimed the assassination as having come from their milieu. It was kind of a rumor, and for some extreme militants, a point of pride. So, in 1988, when a man named Leonardo Marino came to the Carabinieri with a story of his own involvement, few saw any reason to doubt him. At least not at first. Marino claimed to have been part of the clandestine force within Lotto Continua during the early 1970s. He said that from 1971 to 1987, he'd taken part in multiple armed robberies, as well as an assault on the headquarters of the fascist trade union Cisnal. But, he told the Carabinieri, he'd been racked with guilt and had to come forward about the operation on May 17, 1972. For several years within me, Marino declares, the conviction built up, dictated by my moral and religious feelings, to confess to the competent authorities facts and circumstances that saw me involved between the end of the 1960s and beginning of the 70s, when I was active in the ranks of the extra-parliamentary movement Lotta Continua, an imperative has arisen within me for three to four years. The need to account for what I have done in a political context from which I have been detached for over 15 years. Although perhaps I believe that many cannot believe me, I have decided to confess what I've done or what I know, above all out of respect for these boys. But immediately there were problems with his story. First of all, as everyone notes, he got the color of the car of the hit squad completely wrong. According to Marino, the Fiat was beige. In reality, the Fiat was blue. This is a big error, but sure, it's been more than 15 years. But there's another small detail. Marino says he started that morning at the cafe in the subway, and as he's pulling out of the parking lot, the blue Fiat got into a small fender bender with another car. In Marino's testimony, the other cars entering the lot, the bumpers collide slightly, and in something of a panic, the other car reverses a bit, and then Marino goes around the other car to the exit. However, the person whose car was actually hit insisted that he was himself parked and leaving the garage when the blue Fiat hit him, and he said that the impact was actually quite fierce. And since then, the Fiat has been destroyed leaving no ability to examine where the paint or the dent on the car have, had been left. Marino also flipped the escape route. The blue Fiat had torn off in one direction after the shooting, but Marino indicated on a map that they went the wrong way, that they went the other way. 
the opposite direction. The, pro the prosecutor assured the judges that this was because the map had been handed to Marino upside down, but it contributed to the accumulation of doubts for many. So there are three incongruities in the testimony thus far. The color of the car, the ding on the car leaving the garage, and then the actual path of the escape route. But then there were also slight changes to his confession about what had happened. According to historian Carlo Ginsberg's forensic analysis of the documents of the case involving thousands of pages, three different narratives emerge. First, Marino is approached by another Lotto Continua member named Ovidio Bompresi about the possibility of an attack on Calabresi. After a few approaches, he agrees, and then he gets confirmation from two co-founding leaders, Adriano Sofri and Giorgio Pietro Stefani, in Pisa on May 13, 1972, after a Lotta Continua mass rally for Franco Serentini four days before the hit would be carried out. The story changed slightly, however. Now the proposal came through Bompresi, and then Pietro Stefani produced some detailed instructions. Confirmation from Sofri then came after the rally on May 13th, but Pietro Stefani wasn't a big part of that meeting. However, Pietro Stefani was laying low at the time and wouldn't have been hanging around a big rally with lots of cops in the middle of Pisa at all. So then the story changed again. Pietro Stefani was no longer in Pisa, but here also there was an issue because Marino stated that the meeting with, with Sofri took place on the street outside of a bar. Well, as we discussed earlier, it was raining that day, there were lots of umbrellas, which would have made an outdoor meeting kind of awkward. As well, Lotta Continua adherent Guelfo Guelfi insisted that this meeting was impossible because right after the rally, Sofri was talking with him about whether to put up the plaque for Serentini right away. Yet while Sofri contended that the rain was too intense for a meeting, the weather data showed that the rain had been fairly mild. This slight flaw in Sofri's testimony was then used to discredit him, and the judges dismissed Guelfi's testimony. Interestingly, Marino would add that the killing had been planned before Serentini's death and would have gone forward regardless of the event. The death of Serentini had only sped up the timing, whereas the details had been arranged through meetings with Pietro Stefani in Turin. And then there was another issue. Marino and his wife were staying with friends at the time of Calabresi's murder, and in confirmation of his testimony, his wife told the court about an incident a couple of days after the hit. She was sitting with her then-housemate Laura Villardi Paravia in the kitchen, looking at newspapers, and the newspaper had a description of one of the killers. And then Laura notices that the killer is sitting right there in the living room. It was Marino's friend, Ovidio Bompresi, who was visiting just then. But then, Laura Villardi Paravia told the court in 1990 that this story was totally false. It did not happen, and it could not have happened. First of all, 
they had moved to a different house by then, and second of all, the living room at that house was not even visible from the kitchen in the fashion described. Regardless of these and other holes in Marino's story, there were some aspects that rendered an air of plausibility. For instance, he claimed that the killing would have taken place on May 16th, but Calabresi's car was not in the area, so they abandoned Chase for the day. An interesting detail, given that Gemma's diary showed that this was a day that Luigi came home early, so he was able to park in the garage in a space not visible from the street. As well, Marino's admission about the robberies he'd taken part in actually checked out, and their perpetrators were then arrested during the Sofri trial. Yet, other countervailing testimonies are thrown out in favor of Marino's for what seem like smaller errors. Regarding the murder weapon, Marino said he got it from an armory that was robbed in Piazza del Statuto, along with several other guns that were used by other members of Lotta Continua's secret arm. However, the 357 Smith & Wesson he claimed to have obtained didn't show up in the armory's books as having been stolen. At the same time, the owner of the armory admitted to the court that the 357 had been swiped, but that its loss hadn't been put on the ledgers because it was unregistered and he wanted to hide the secret. It's also fully possible that another hypothesis is true. Bompressi and Marino murdered Calabresi in efforts to please Pietro Stefani and Sofri without their consent. This notion was advanced by author Giampiero Mugini, who had left Lotta Continua to join the mainstream press. After all, why would Marino come forward and talk if he wasn't guilty? The writer Alberto Moravia reflected that it would take Dostoevsky to parse the internal compulsions of such a man, let alone that of the defense if it had been guilty. Quote, Other than Dostoevsky, if this were all false and lies, it would be a long novel of lies built with talent and by those who are talented. What a stain and a permanent one would be left on the path of a generation. Il Manifesto, on the other hand, had a different take. For them, Calabresi was a victim of the strategy of tension. Perhaps Calabresi had been killed by someone from the right in attempts to set up the left. Reflections on the Calabresi assassination are generally more charged and intense even than that. Potere Operaio leader Franco Piperno would later argue that, quote, the political responsibility for the death was entirely attributable to the extra-parliamentary movement. The truth is that Calabresi's death is the beginning of left-wing terrorism. Although the October 22nd gang in Genoa had already committed kidnapping and murder, they had done so for money instead of ideology. The Red Brigades had conducted a kidnapping, but it was only for a brief period and more for the purposes of propaganda. The Calabresi murder was the first targeted ambush and assassination of a public official. By the late 1990s, however, many on the radical left had grown weary of making excuses. Famous novelist Eri De Luca 
declared in Micromega magazine in 1996, quote, Not only Lotto Continua, but the whole left that arose could kill that commissioner without having to form an armed gang. Anyone except Leonardo Marino. De Luca, who had been the head of the security service of the Rome chapter of Lotta Continua, shrugged off the line of defense taken by the group's former managers who sought to distance themselves from the violence of those days. He called them, quote, Trasecolati, which means the stupefied, who sat on, quote, padded chairs. Instead, he immediately identified himself first and foremost with the rank-and-file Ovidio Bompressi. After Sofri, Bompressi, and Pietro Stefani were ultimately convicted the next year, anarchist Alfredo Bonanno wrote, quote, These thousands and more comrades present at Giuseppe Pinelli's grave of the Maggiore Cemetery in Milan, all of us pulled the trigger. No pardon, no pity. After spending most of the 1990s Continuing his activism, criticizing Berlusconi for his pro-Putin position on Chechnya, and working to support Bosnians during the genocide, Sofri did end up going to jail in Pisa for years. After a while, he did get a kind of work release to work at the university. He had a really bad esophagus problem, though, and ultimately he's released from prison conditionally for medical issues as a kind of a mercy thing that the Italian penal system does sometimes. He's continued to write, for instance, on Machiavelli, Tupac, and anti-fascism. Some think that this represents a kind of privilege that those who weren't intellectuals or high-profile don't get the opportunity to have. Meanwhile, Pietro Stefani has spent the time since conviction in France, where he lives in exile under the so-called Mitterrand Doctrine. There are still extradition trials ongoing to bring him back to Italy to face punishment. When Mario Calabresi writes about the responses to the conviction and trial in his book, his tone is more that of one who is willing to let bygones be bygones. But also, there's an unshakable and haunting weariness in his writings. He calls it, quote, turning the page while respecting memory. In recent years, Mario and Adriano Sofri's son, Luca, have forged a friendship, calling for both the liberation of Adriano and also the vindication of Calabresi's name in the historical memory. Gemma similarly appears to be open even to a kind of pardon for Adriano, but also for a sense of respect for her former husband. This is important since the Sofri case isn't just about Calabresi or about terrorism at large. It's about the way that Italy tries to contend with the tragic fallout of a period of such high ambition and such devastating trauma. Writer Aldo Cazzullo would declare, quote, The Sofri case, whether you like it or not, is part of that story that does not end. It's the most visible train of the 70s the laceration from the strongly symbolic position, the living paradox of an era which appears very remote, where some of the best minds in the country really thought they could make the revolution in the West. 
In the years when large industry fragmented, the number of small businesses doubled. Automation closed the era of workers' control of production. The university abdicated its own historical role of formation of the elites. The permanent revolt, the policy of street and piazza, turned out to be an element of redefinition and ultimately the analysis of modernization of the capitalist system that had produced them. In a sense, the killing of Calabresi and the later Sofri trial can come off not as an epoch-shifting event, but as a weird and long story without much relevance in a period marked by much heavier blows, terrorist bombings, high-profile kidnappings, massive strike waves. Initially, I just wanted to do this as a bonus episode, but the more I read about it, the more powerful it seemed. Viewed together with the other momentous phenomena, the two events come into clarity as part of a series of revolutionary turns that went beyond what revolutionaries had hoped for, ground them up in their own gears, and produced a new era of economic production that fostered different social conditions, new and perhaps more formidable challenges, and important intergenerational contestations over the politics of memory. I'm Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please drop a little coin in the old bucket, as they say, because, you know, books ain't free. Um, so visit us on Patreon, uh, subscribe for lots of fun interviews and transcripts, um, give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to, and tune in next time. Thanks so much for listening and take care.